Hey everybody, Clint Fosley here and welcome back to the 27th edition of the Clint Fosley podcast. Today we have another Y series and we are joined by Corky Carroll, originally from California, but now out of Mexico. I can tell you what, man, this is one hell of a fun episode. And looking back at the video recording, I just had a huge smile on my face because Corky has got the most contagious personality in a positive way. He's just the, the happiest guy you'll ever meet and just has lived the most amazing life. Corky's claim to fame, so to speak, or his notoriety was a reach, was the first guy ever to become a professional surfer. Yes, at the age of 16, he was the first person ever to get paid to surf and become what they call today as a professional surfer. He's, he lived an absolutely amazing life and we weave our way through it to how from a young age competitive surfing was his thing. He won five US Open titles. Then how he went on to, you know, start a music career, has released 12 albums, uh, also written five books. He was a Miller's Light guy, just to give you uh, from an advert perspective, I'm sure everyone in North America will recognize the voice. And finally, believe it or not, he was actually one of the characters in Square SquarePants SpongeBob? SquarePants? Sorry, <laughs> my kids would kill me for getting that wrong. Anyway, just uh, another, one, once again, another an amazing episode for those who are struggling passion, struggling to find your why. Corky just, you know, shows you that whatever you put your mind to and do what you love, man, it really, really shines through. As always, from our perspective for the divorce courses, or if you're looking for a course, we have a course called Finding Why specifically to help you out to try to find your niche so you can live a life and, and just be happy, right? So as always, clintforsley.com forward slash help me. I want to thank Lester once again for connecting me to Corky and doing all the research. Thanks, mate. You're an absolute lifesaver and a legend. I really, really appreciate it. I also want to thank Corky so much for, for his time, for giving so generously uh, late in the evening in Mexico. I know you're absolutely going to love this one and definitely put a smile on your dial. So strap in, enjoy, and we'll see you on the other side. Welcome back and welcome to the 27th edition of the Clint Force podcast series, another Y series. And today we are joined by Corky Carroll. Corky, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Stoked to be here. So from for those across the world, across the world, <laughs> this is COVID safe um, podcast. We are far from each other. Um, having said that, I've been doing COVID tests with my kids, which is not pleasant. But anyway, that's another story. Um, so for those who've never joined the podcast before, welcome. And the whole concept of the Y series is I track down people of various aspects of life. There's a huge bias towards surfing, obviously. Uh, for people who've just lived with their passion and lived their dream and, and followed that pursuit uh, and haven't followed the, the norm in terms of getting the job. And Corky is certainly one of those people who has done exactly that and has sort of you know, in, 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 the, in researching this podcast has kind of said, well, I've done everything in my possible not to get a real job, which is so, so cool. So um, we're just going to dive into Corky's story and, and, and just figure out how he's weaved the life to where he's lived and, and, and what sort of motivated that. So once again, welcome. And so Corky, when did it all start? Where were you born? And, and when, 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 did it, uh, when did it begin for you? Well, our, my parents moved us to the beach when I was about, I don't know, four or five years old. And yeah. um, our house was right on the sand. So, you know, all of us kids would play in the water and we'd ride anything that would float by, an old piece of plywood with a nail sticking out of it. We'd ride it, you know, a log, a <laughs> stick, anything. Yeah. And the older guys would leave their boards laying on the beach because this was in the days of big, heavy wooden boards. And they didn't want to, like, take them anywhere, so they just left them laying there. And, you know, younger guys, we didn't, like, take them out. And uh, I was always putting dings in guys' boards. And one day... All the other guys showed up at my house and told my dad, either he buy me my own border, they were going to drown me. <laughs> and what age was this at? This was about seven. <laughs> so my dad had, had to think about it. <laughs> Pros and cons. <laughs> and he finally agreed. And I got a board for Christmas that year. It was 1957. Yeah. And, and what was that board? It was an eight foot seven pintail solid balsa wood. And uh, I weighed 44 pounds. It weighed 47. <laughs> it was made by a guy named Dick Barrymore, yep. who later got famous making ski movies. Crazy. And, and how did you not kill yourself on that thing? I don't know. <laughs> you know, just before four surf leashes and before wetsuits. Yeah. 
And and how long how long did you hang on to that board for? Uh, I had it a couple of years. Then I had to get a foam one. You know, everybody, you have to have foam. It's lighter. It's better. Yeah, yeah. And and looking back in the early days, and, and that was Huntington Beach where you grew up, right? Just north of Huntington Beach, a little town called Surfside. Okay. It was a little private beach. Uh, these like old beaten up wooden houses. Such a such a cool opportunity to grow up there, man. Yeah, I was lucky. Yeah, yeah. So, so who who did you aspire to in those days? I mean, who who were you? Because I mean, from my understanding, surfing was like the the, re- the rebellious path, right? It wasn't like the the, the conform thing to do. But were there any guys that stood out in those days? Like you were like these guys, I want to be like them. Your your rock stars in those days. Well, in the very beginning, it was just the the guys, you know, the were the older guys on my street. Yeah. They were like better than I was, but then. Uh, what, one of the kids down the street's mother took us to a surf movie. Yeah, they was showing at the little art theater up in Hollywood. It was John Severson's Surf Safari yeah. uh, right at the beginning of 1958. And I saw all these, like, you know, Mike Doyle and Phil Edwards and, and Dewey Weber and, and uh, Mickey Mignos. These were the, my early heroes. Yeah. You know, Phil Edwards, Dewey Weber, Doyle, and Mignos. Brilliant. So, so was, was that the... Was that the pivot point where you wanted to start competing or was that just a natural progression where you started competing because you were, you know, frothing? Well, the, we didn't have contests. The first big contest on the West Coast was in 1959. Yeah. It was <coughs> the West Coast Surfing Championships at Huntington Beach Pier, which became the U.S. Surfing Championships a few years later. And I entered that like at, I was like 11. And I got third in my heat. Yeah. yeah, I felt pretty good because there were six guys in my heat. Yeah, <laughs> and I was the only one under about sixteen. So, brilliant. So, so did you get? Was the top two go through in those days, or how did it work? Was it what? I said, did the top two go through, or did you just you know, just have one heat and then that was it, or did you progress through? No, I was so like you know, it was just the guy that won the heat progressed. I okay. went like three years before I even won a heat. Oh, the wow. first time I won a heat was in 1962. And when I won the heat, I went, oh, that's how you do that and won the whole contest. <laughs> <laughs> and what contest was that? It was the St. Clemente Surf Capades. So that was your first big win or first My win. first big win, yeah. Sweet. And what and year was that? You said that was 62. 62. And how old were you then? Um, I guess I was about 13 or 13. 14, and then, and then so, so here's a question. Once you got that, that competition bug, was it – was it the winning or, or, or was it that you had figured out the judging system or the hardest surf to win contest? What was it, if you think back in those days, that, that well, clicked? At first, it was just that, you know, I was so stoked to do it. It's like, yeah. <laughs> and I started winning a lot of contests. And then, you know, there was chicks and, and you know, stuff. Yeah. And people <laughs> wanted to give me boards instead of having to buy them. Sweet. So the 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 perks of the the perks of the success were good. Yeah, I I told my dad <coughs> I was going to be a pro surfer. Yeah, and he goes, "How are you going to do that? They they don't have pro surfers." I went, "There will be, and I'm going to be it." <laughs> and, what, and it happened. I know. I mean, so for those who don't know, and we're going to get there, Corky is the the first professional surfer ever. So, what age would would you? I mean, we might be going back a bit. What age did you say I'm going to become a professional surfer? Was that right when, when, I won, right when I won, when I won the first contest? Okay. I remember I got I, I went a, a friend of mine, Richard Harbour, that made Harbour surfboards. I wrote his boards at that time. He took me to the contest and I had him drop me off way down at the end of my street rather than at my house, so I could walk down the street and show everybody my trophy. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. And there and there clearly wasn't was there prize money in those days or not? No, no, that was much later. Street credits. Yeah. Brilliant. Now, how, how did you manage to stay in school during those days? Because obviously the allure for the surfing, you know, the, the benefits, the perks of that was, were you, were, did you manage to get yourself through school or were you just kind of focused on the surfing thing? No, it was actually pretty easy because our house was right on the beach and the surf was right in front of my house. Yeah. So I could get up and surf for an hour before going to school. And then I could come home and surf for two or three hours before it got dark. So on a school day, I could surf four hours. Sweet. So I wanted to go to school because 
you know, that's where the social stuff took place. Yeah. Yeah. So, so moving forward as your competitive career now, you, 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 I mean, I, from what I, what I've researched, you won over a hundred contests. What is your, your, you know, besides that first one, your biggest win after that, which really for you was like, Oh shit, I've actually, I am better than most people out here. Well, the next year I won the U S championship in the juniors and, uh, I won the paddle race. I would have got the all around, but they didn't start giving that until the next year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got sponsored by Hobie and then by Jansen Swimwear. And, and it started taking, you know, taking shape. So, so at the, I mean, from what I know, at the age of 16, you were the first professional surfer and getting paid to do what you loved, right? That's right. Yeah. Sweet. And, and was that through Jansen and Hobie? Yeah, with the uh, Hobie, I was getting, I was getting paid from Jansen, but one day Hobie told me he didn't want me to do anything but surf, and I was working in the factory, uh, mowing down blanks, and uh, so he put me on salary just just to surf. So all I want you to do is surf, just you know, maybe go visit dealers, <laughs> but just go surf up and down the coast. So so, so I would like I was on salary. That's awesome. So, so, and did you finish up school? Because if you're 16, you're getting paid to surf. Did you manage to finish it up? Yeah, yeah. I, I went. I graduated, and uh, my high school, Huntington Beach, was was very lenient with me. When I would go to Hawaii and stuff, they would let me take off and give me work to do, and let mm-hmm. me make up stuff because I was already winning stuff. So they they were kind of behind me. That's cool. So how how did you how did you meet Hobie? How did that all happen? Well, kind of after I won the San Clemente contest, they were, they were there. Mickey Munoz was a judge and Phil Edwards was a judge. And uh, Hobie had just bought Ole surfboards in Seal Beach. And he put Mickey Munoz in charge of running it. And Mickey recruited me to surf for Ole, which yep. was owned by Hobie. And then they dissolved Ole in about a year and I just sort of graduated over to Hobie. Yeah. And then you were just, you were, so you were, I guess a team rider for lack of a better words, but just also working in the factory and then that transpired to just, you know what, just go surf. Yeah. <coughs> and part of the, um, from what I understand, you actually shape boards for Hobie as well. How did, how did that shaping passion? No, not? no, I, I never shaped. Um, I was, I would, come up with ideas and then I would you know, I'd run in and grab a shaper and go, oh, we got to do this, you know, do it like that. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I'd stand there and yap at them while they were like trying to shape them. And Brilliant. some of the shapers were really good at listening to what I said and making what I wanted. Terry Martin was really good at that. Yep. Uh, even Mickey Munoz was, but with the, some of the shapers just wanted to make what they wanted to make. And I tell them what, what I wanted, but they would make, their version of that. And it was, so I, I had to find shapers that would actually listen to what I said and, and put it into foam. I, I've shaped, but I never was a very good shaper because I never really wanted to be in there. I wanted to be out surfing. Uh, yeah, I, was, uh, I, I did a podcast with Matt Young and he's a, you know, fanatical shaper. He said like every surfer should shape a surfboard. I'm like, mate, have you seen my DIY? You wouldn't put me near <laughs> the thing would come out. Yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be rideable once I got my hands on it. I shaped in, uh, quite a few of them, but they were all like that. Yeah. <laughs> and they had big tears in them, but they worked okay. It just, you know, it just, nobody wanted to have their logo on them. <laughs> so <laughs> I, a funny, a little side note to that, that when I went to Australia, um, I went, we went up to Queensland when I was first there with, with a friend of mine, Bombay Beecham, mm. and he had a connection with Dick Van Stralen. And Dick was making boards, and Dick wanted to hire me to shape boards, and I needed money. So okay, <laughs> so I shaped about four boards in Dick's factory, and he realized, oh man, these things really suck. <laughs> it's like, oh, I can't. It's a different planer. I don't know how to use these like narrow Australian planers. <laughs> I think I hurt my arm. So was I, had, that- I had a bad back. I can't. <laughs> was that up in Noosa or Gold Coast? Where were you? That was in uh, Burley Heads. 
Burley. Okay. Cool. 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 Um, Sorry, Dick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just admitting to that now. <laughs> He'll send you a check for for damages that it was claimed against him or something. Um, so but your your relationship with Hobie's gone on forever, right? Is it still existent, or is it a very, from my understanding, a super long relationship that you've had with him? Well, Hobie treated me really good, and I made you know good money working for Hobie. Yeah, and I always liked him. He was you know Hobie. It's one of those guys that nobody doesn't like. Just a really good guy, and I spent most of my almost all of my surfing career surfing for Hobie and then I, there was a big gap in between where I was working at Surfer Magazine and doing a bunch of other stuff yeah. where I didn't have surfboard sponsors and uh, when I kind of got back into it in the late 80s I had a clothing line which included a surfboard line and uh, that went for a while and uh and then I worked with Robert August for a few years. And, um, and then when I hurt my back and got into stand-ups, I got back with Hobie with a SUP model. Yeah. So I kind of like was sort of there, but sort of gone for a long time. And then got back with them. And are they still manufacturing boards? Because from a South African perspective, you, the only Hobie we knew was the Hobie cat, right? You know, from the catamaran perspective. And in Australia, you don't see a lot of them. Are they still manufacturing in the U.S.? Or Yes, they are. And uh, what they re- re-release some of my old shapes. So you can get a original Corky Carroll model or a, a, mini, a super mini model, which were, came out in like the late 60s. So they have retro shapes. And then for new designs, um, a friend of mine I opened a friend of mine and I opened a company a couple of years ago called Blue Mango Surf. Yeah, and uh, we named it after my last album. It's called Blue Mango, and uh, so we make custom boards. Yeah, the Blue Mango Surf. There we go. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> no. Always been that way. Shameless plugs. <laughs> Must be. Got to put food on the table, right? It's at bluemangosurf.com, folks. <laughs> and Instagram, we'll put all the links in the show notes, of course. I look forward to getting my custom board from you. Um, yeah. But my problem is I spend all my time on the foil at the moment. I've got the foil bug, which is terrible. Um, it's addictive. I haven't so, tried one of those yet, <sighs> but there's a reef right out in front of our house here in Mexico that'd be perfect for that. Oh, man, I mean, because, you know, Sunshine Coast, yeah, the waves are generally shitty, right? So so we, it's very rare that maybe 15, 20 days a year you're going to get good waves. Um, but just for the mush that we've got here, it's it's just opened, so it's opened everything up, man. It's amazing. It's it's really, really cool. You're at Noosa, right? Yeah, I'm about 15 minutes south of Noosa. Well, my good pal, Phil Jarrett, yep. lives at Noosa. And he's always telling me that 365 days a year, it's epic. <laughs> uh, I would say, yeah, if you've got a kite and a foil and a surfboard and a longboard and patience, then yes. <laughs> he New- drinks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. No, Noosa, Noosa gets packed, man. It's crazy, crazy there. Um, I take my kids up there quite often uh, when it's good, but it's, it's, it's busy. Busy, busy. So let's pull back to your competitive surfing. So, um, okay. you know, from, from, from what I, what I know you've been named best surf in the world was, you know, one of your huge achievements. Um, just want to talk about that and, and what impact that had for you. The surfer pole. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of proud of that. <laughs> um, yeah. I won the surfer pole. Yep. And I mean, that's just, you know, for those who don't know, just your, your peers around the world saying that they believe. Um, so, so it's a, it's, it's an, that was pretty humbling. Yeah. I never really thought I was the best surfer in the world. I knew I could surf good, Yeah. but there's so many really, really good surfers. And when I look back, I could, you know, I can name a whole bunch that I think were better than me, but I'm just, you know, I'm stoked that I won it. <laughs> But I mean, from, from my side, you know, it's, 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 it's not a subjective, you know, how you rode the wave. It's just all your peers, you know, voting. So that's, it's almost better than winning a contest in a way. Yeah. Honestly. That's what I thought too. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So yeah, I'm proud of that one. 
<laughs> um, stepping away from competition. So, so for 24, from what I understand, you kind of walked away. Where was the decision to, you know, had you, had you won enough that you decided to stop or was it just time for another phase in your life? It was kind of a combination of all of those. Um, surfing competition in California was getting very, very difficult because the whole surfing scene in Southern California was kind of shrinking where when I was coming up, it was growing. I kind of came along right at the right time when things were booming and, you know, there had been beach movies and, and beach boys and, yep. and surfing was da, 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 and I grew with it. And then kind of right around the early seventies, it started kind of coming back and Vietnam was happening and it was sort of like, you know, drop in, drop out. Mm. And, it was getting harder and harder to, to make a living because the money was getting less. It kind of peaked about 1968 as far as income goes. Um, but I was still making a living and still doing it. But it was getting harder and harder because I think the longer you do it, the more they don't want you to win anymore. And so it becomes very difficult because you don't win any close calls. Yeah. You have to, like, really hands down, flat out, blow them away to get a win. You know, it's getting harder. And there was a lot of events that I felt I should have won that I got second or third or something. Yeah. And it was getting frustrating. And sort of the combination of that and the people that were running the surfing events were real hard-headed. And they just wanted to do it their way and not listen to the surfers themselves and as the one of the surfers ourselves we were speaking out and like we had a couple walkouts <laughs> the whole thing because they just wouldn't listen it's better to do it like this they just wanted like look it's going to be saturday and sunday and the heats are going to go like this and that's the way it's going to be and at the end of 1972 I was still the number one surfer on, in California and they held a world championship in San Diego. Yeah. And it was this extreme South swell and it was like up the coast. It was pumping. Um, trestles was like 10 feet. Um, Newport like pipeline happened then it was like 15 foot <laughs> big barrels, but they had to hold it in San Diego County. So they held all the preliminaries and quarterfinals at Oceanside, which is the far north end of the county. And there was some surf there. Yeah. And, but then for the semifinals and finals, they moved it to Ocean Beach. Flat. I mean, it was, it, was, it was as close to flat as you could possibly get. And I went out of my semifinal heat. It was 20 minutes long. It was your best five waves. And there was no waves. Yeah. High tide. And... I was in the first semi-family, and we sat there for like 15 minutes, and nobody rode a wave. And then everybody else paddled right in by the beach, and we're like catching these, the things that would lap up on the beach, and standing up and like doing something and jumping off the rides for like maybe four, not even three seconds. And I sat there going, well, maybe one wave will come, and if I catch that one wave, I'll win. Yeah. <laughs> but no wave came. <laughs> All 20 minutes went by, and I... I remember I paddled in, I went up the beach and I went, if this is what it's come to, yeah. I'm done. Yeah. And so I said, this is my last, my last contest. And I was getting really interested in music at the time. Yep. And I'd started playing in bars and uh, um, I thought this is the time for me to segue and try to do music. But it was kind of difficult doing it at the beach because if people came to see me, it was through this curiosity. Well, let's see how bad he possibly could be, you know? <laughs> and, and to their credit, <laughs> I, I really wasn't very good. I could play, okay, but my singing totally sucked. Yeah. Because it just, like, I, I didn't sing and then I did. Yeah. And uh, so I figured I got to go somewhere else and learn how to do this before I try to do it here. And so I thought, you know, I've always skied. So I'll move to the mountains and spend a couple of years skiing and learning how to do music better. So I moved up to Sun Valley, Idaho, and uh, spent three years, played in bars, yep. um, skied. Um, that's where I got into playing tennis. Yep. Um, 
and then I came back and, and did music and uh, tennis. So, so what, what were you doing in, uh, from a work-wise when you were in Sun Valley? Were you just kind of doing the, the muso thing in bars to earn, to earn an income, or were you still at any other surfing contacts running at that time? Yeah, I was, I was working at the Chart House, which is a, a restaurant that was started by surfers. Yep. They had them all over. And uh, I would, uh, I'd wait tables on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday nights. Friday and Saturday, I'd play music. Sunday was my night off. Yeah. And then Monday, I played music at uh, the Sun Valley Ski School uh, for a, a welcoming party. And for that, I got dinner, $10, and a season pass. Oh, that's so cool. I could ski for free. <laughs> and did you, did you ever, I mean, during the summers when you were in Idaho, did you just stay up there or did you come back to the beach or how did you work that? I would come back to the beach for what was called spring and fall slack. That was about two months when everything was closed. And then I went back to Sun Valley. It worked in the chart house, uh, played tennis. And then I would drive to Oregon, which was about 10 hours away on uh, when I had two or three days off and I'd surf in Oregon. Okay. Crazy. Must've been cold up there. Really, really cold. There's a lot of good surf, but it's, really cold yeah, 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 yeah as someone who grew up in cape town i i get cold water and it's not pleasant man <laughs> yeah no it's on a warm day the water's in the low 50s that's crazy it's very cold so so what did you do from the from the muso like from what i know you've you released nine albums now um how, how did you sharpen your sword in terms of getting becoming a better muso was it just you know leaning on people or was it just repetition well, it was kind of a complicated, you know, I played and played and sang and sang. And then when I came back, um, um, I got a vocal coach. I took singing lessons. Yep. I went to college, you know, took music classes um, and uh, just did it and did it and did it and did it and did it. I still, it took me a long time to to break through where I feel like I can actually sing. Yeah. In uh, it. It, was, it took a long time. I could play a lot better than I could sing. But I would write these like silly songs. And kind of, we did kind of musical comedy yeah. with a surf theme. And I could sort of get away with that until finally I got better. But <laughs> and still, still an integral part of your life today? Playing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I play here. I live in Mexico here. And I play yeah. um, dinner concerts. Uh, during the season, and uh, I signed a few years ago a, a new record contract with Darla Records, and uh, they released a lot of my old records. I think I have 13 albums now. Is it 13? Um, Sorry, my bad. You probably have an old bio. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. And, and um, uh, they released all, all my old stuff, plus I did a new album. Uh, it's called Blue Mango. Yes. And it's on Darla Records. You can get that from Darla.com. <laughs> and is that on for all the streaming platforms as well? Amazon, iTunes. You know, <laughs> links in the show notes, click, click, click. <laughs> just, um, I just want to... I'm working on a new one now too. Oh, brilliant. When are you looking to release that? Uh, maybe in about a year. I, I've, I've written about eight songs. I need 10. Okay. Wow. And do and you have a recording studio where you're at in Mexico or... Oh, there you go. <laughs> For those listening uh, on the commute, there is a sound a soundboard. Soundboard, I think it's called. I lost you. Oh. Can you still see me? I can still see you. Oh, okay, I can't see you. I don't know what happened. No, no, I'm we still good. I'm still here. Okay, that's good. Um, just, uh, just, I just want to, I know we're jumping around here, but just, uh, you know, from your life, when you walked away from competitive surfing, what's your perspective or take on where competitive surfing is today? Like if you, if you look back at a 24 year old you and you saw the WSL and you saw the big endorsements and I guess the circus that is the Huntington beach pro when that comes into town, um, what's your perspective on how that's all transitioned? And do you think surfing professionally and competitively is on the right track? Um, I, I think it's amazing. Um, I I don't follow it real close, but I do follow it. Uh, I watch some of the events that they have online, and the judging is different than I would probably 
envision it myself, but I understand why they do it that way. It's mm-hmm. uh, sometimes I think it's based more on quantity than quality. Um, so that the more the more you do, the more points you get, rather than kind of the quality of the of the thing. But but yep. that's just being old school, I guess. <laughs> I'm pretty old school. <laughs> but they do. I mean, if you look at like for me as a, I guess I'm I'm, I'm not someone who goes above the lip, but it's just a air reverse can win a heat these days, you know, and you're getting a, almost a different kind of surfer who's more of a a skater in a way doing these massive airs uh, and winning heats. Yeah. I, well, the surfing just blows me away. It's, it's, it's just amazing. <laughs> yeah. And especially for me, those guys riding tiny boards and pretty heavy waves as well. You know, some of the top guys, it's, it's pretty nuts what they do. Yeah, it really is. Brilliant. So something that I, when I was, when I was once again, researching you, you had this, um, I don't know if it was a tagline or whatever you call it, but you said, uh, you're never going to get a real job. Are you doing your best to avoid a real job? What is that? Is it something like that, right? That was one of my uh, commercials with Miller Lite. Yes. Um, yes. So I was lucky to be with them for a long time. Um, that was the, my first commercial. And how did that come about? Uh, actually, it's kind of a funny story. I was in Hawaii uh, on the North Shore and stand at my friend Mark Martinson's house. And... I got a phone call one day and it's this girl and she says she was from this agency in New York city and they want to know if I want to do a Miller light commercial. And I thought it was somebody playing with me, you know, so I look, look up and down the beach and uh, don't see anybody. And yeah. so I went, okay, who is this? No, really? Her, her name was Ellen Lefkowitz. I remember. And uh, she goes, we, we want you to come to New York and read for uh, this commercial. And I went, well, when do you want me to come? And she goes, well, tomorrow. I went, well, I can't come tomorrow. There's a swell. She goes, when can you come? She goes, I'll come soon as the swell goes down. She goes, okay, well, call me when you're ready to come, and we'll have a ticket waiting for you at Honolulu, Honolulu Airport. So two weeks later, I called her up. went, okay, the swell's down. She goes, okay, there'll be a ticket for you tomorrow. So I went in and, you know, jumped on a jet first class, New York City, read for the, read the, the script. Yeah. And uh, – I went, okay, sounds great, you know, um, we'll call you. And I didn't hear anything from him for a couple months. I figured I didn't get it. And then one day I got a call saying, okay, we're shooting on Thursday. Check into the Beverly Hills Hotel tomorrow at 3 for wardrobe and signing and da-da-da-da. Yeah. I went, cool. <laughs> so I went up and did it. And it, it led to a whole string of commercials and and like 11 years of – been a Miller Lite all-star doing appearances and actually making money for a while. That's crazy. Really I mean, unique. That, that must pay really well though. I mean, my, my understanding of the ad, you know, advertising, I don't know where it is, but in those days you used to, if you got, you know, especially being the, the face of an advert, it must've been very financially good. Well, good's not the right word. It must've been a huge financial gain for you. Yeah, it was. I was, yeah. well, it lasted. It was great. It was a shock when it when it ended. It's like, oh no, man! I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to fly coach again. <laughs> yeah, you see, once you once you go left, it's just hard to turn right again. Huh? But it's it really. <laughs> so, um, anything? I mean, from a I'm just trying to look at look at everything that you've done, man. Uh, when, when did the surf school start? Oh, that started in the early '90s. Mm-hmm. Um, I had moved back to Huntington Beach. I was teaching tennis. Okay. And then I moved back to Huntington Beach from San Clemente, where I was to live for 25 years. And um, I got a job, a side job working in a surf shop um, just to supplement the tennis income in the winter when, when it got slow. Yeah. Uh, tennis in the summer was more work than I could do. But in the winter – you know, people don't take lessons because it's cold and rainy. So I was working in a surf shop, and a, a guy came in the, and uh, it was hosting a, a talk show for uh, sports, and he asked me to be on his show. So I did a segment on his talk show, and he asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, besides surfing and working in the surf shop, I teach tennis. And uh, 
just so happens about a week later, he, he signed his daughter up for tennis lessons with me. And uh, about a month went by, and he came to me and he goes, you shouldn't be teaching tennis, you should be teaching surfing. And uh, I went, well, uh, yeah, but there's no, can't make a living teaching surfing. He goes, well, we're going to open a surf school. I go, we are? And he goes, yeah, yeah, leave it to me. I'll get it together. We're going to open a surf school. And I went, okay, you get it together and I'm in. <laughs> he's never going to get it together. Yeah. And a couple months later, he came in. He goes, okay, I got it together. We got a location. I got boards. I got instructors. We got permits. We're opening June 15th at Bolsa Chica Corky Carroll Surf School. And he went, bitching. <laughs> <laughs> and is that still running today? Yeah, it's still going strong. Um, he's done and, an amazing job with it. His name's Rick Walker, yeah. and he's turned it over to his son, Colin Walker. And it's 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 a great surf school. It's, it's really good. It competes with my son's surf school, which is on the other side of town, <laughs> Click Carroll Surf School. <laughs> That's a healthy competition, right? Yeah, my son's always going, Dad, can I, well, how come I can't use your name? I go, because it's not my own sir. school, dude. <laughs> Daddy's slower to eat, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, from the surf school, uh, we, I want to get into the travel stuff as well, because obviously I'm assuming you've been everywhere around the world, but uh, your surf school in Costa Rica as well, how, how did that come about? My partner, Rick, he went to Costa Rica on a surf trip. Yep. He liked it so much, he decided he wanted to move down there. Oh, classic. So, so he moved down there and opened up a one down there. So we had one there and one in Huntington Beach. Brilliant. And and have you, do you spend a lot of time there in Costa Rica or not, really? No, I spend all my time here in Mexico. Um, I sort of started my own Corky Curl Surf Adventures. Yeah. And we have a house here right on the beach at an amazingly good surf spot, uh, sort of like Malibu, but a left in warm water. It's always 80 degrees, good surf, really consistent. And what we do is we have people come stay with us at our house. Oh, and great. we, you know, they eat and drink and they use my boards and I coach them. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of an upscale surf trip. Uh, and uh, we can take from one to six people at a time. So and how long have you been doing that for? I've been doing that for... Um, 16, 17 years. I moved to Mexico in 2003, and uh, we had our first guests in the spring of 2004. So I've been doing it for 16 so what is the what, years. what is the pull to Mexico? I mean, besides affordability, I'm assuming it just was it just the the the, the feel of it, or, or what what took you there? Well, it's beautiful. Where, where we live, it's tropical. It reminds me of being in, on Kauai. Uh, it looks very much like the Hanalei Valley here. Uh, and the surf is really good. Mm. Most consistent place I've ever been. We have surf 340 days out of the year and good surf 300 days out of the year. Classic. And it's a, it's, it's a kind of break that's easy to ride yet perfect. Yeah. And when I first time I rode it, I went, I can ride this wave for the rest of my life. It's never going to hurt me. <laughs> and even when it gets big, it's pretty safe. So, so it sounds like I need to come visit. <laughs> yeah, it's a great place. And uh, I had this a friend of mine that I met at the surf school in Costa Rica that hired me to teach him to surf. And mm. he, he wanted to go somewhere warm that had left. So we went to Zihuatanejo, this area, and started surfing this spot. And, he really liked it. So he hired me like a week, a month, years to meet him here and teach him to surf. And we both fell in love with the, with the spot. And when the property came available, um, we looked at it and it was just too good to not do. Yeah. And so, um, you know, bought the lot, built a house and moved. Brilliant, man. And, and how's it changed over the 16 years that you've lived there? Is it, are you finding a lot of, sort of Americans coming down to Mexico or is it just it's still got that, I guess the, the feel that it had when you got there? Well, the feel is still here, but naturally it's, it's gotten a lot more crowded. Mm. Um, you know, we built the first houses and now there's a lot of houses and, uh, but it's more, it's become a surf destination. Yeah. So it's more crowded. There's days where I go, I can get frustrated because I have a hard time getting a wave, but I always get one. 
Yeah. Well, it's not that bad. <laughs> and I guess being on the beach, you can always pick it, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a, I get a lot of waves just, you know, being able to look out and see it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there'll be an afternoon, it'll glass off and nobody's out and I can get out. Yeah. Or it'll be raining and storming in the morning. And they'll turn offshore about noon. It'd be perfect by one and nobody's around. You know, actually, one of my one of my favorite um, surfing memories. I was in Jeffrey's Bay in in uh, Port Elizabeth, and in South Africa, it was the big like the Super Bowl for rugby, the final, and all that was onshore and gunk. And then was sitting in this apartment, and literally at, at just golden hour, it switched for two hours. Everyone was in the pubs watching the rugby, and I had Jay Bay by myself, like myself and this other guy, like eight foot firing for like two and a half hours. It was. Just one of those unique opportunities where the universe aligned. It was awesome. I love those kind of situations. <laughs> I was like, this can't be happening. This is like, this is just, just, you know, paddling out, kicking and frothing and just, yeah, just. And then I think I snapped the board in my last way, but I didn't care. I know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's talk about travel. I mean, when you, you obviously mentioned Hawaii in the early days, um, I, I, I've only been there once and I've got the fright of my life, uh, it, you know, just in terms of the, the power and the closeness to the shore when you first get there. Uh, what is your first trip to Hawaii like? Well, the first time I went to Hawaii was in the summer of 1963. And uh, I had a friend that I had went to school with that had moved over there. Mm. And uh, he invited me to come spend the summer with him. And so I went over there to spend the summer and but he lived about a half hour away from the beach and i met the first week i was there i met a guy that lived right across the street from ala moana and he said i could sleep on his balcony anytime i wanted so i moved into his apartment and lived right across the street from ala moana for the whole summer yeah and my parents thought i was staying with my friend they never knew that i was hanging out on my own i made lays to make money there was a plumeria tree right down on, on the street. And I would, in the morning, I'd go make about four or five plumeria lays. Yeah. And then take them down to, to Waikiki and sell them for like $5 each. So I'd have like $20, $25. And when you're like 15 in Hawaii with like $25, you're like golden. <laughs> and I'd, I'd, I'd wind up going over to the Royal Hawaiian Hotel at, around lunchtime. And I'd kind of scan the pool. And there's always like, hot chicks that were on vacation. They were like my age. So I meet one, almost always get invited to lunch or, di or dinner, better. Yeah. And then I go surf all afternoon and then meet them later for dinner. And, <laughs> and I got through the whole summer like that. And, the, and their daddy was paying for it, right? <laughs> my parents have bought my plane ticket. <laughs> no, I meant her, her, her parents were paying for your dinner. Oh, yeah. Sometimes the parents weren't real. real. <laughs> but for the most part, they were because I was a nice boy. Yeah, <laughs> classic. So how, how did you get your boards across in there? How did you get your boards across in those days? Did you, did you fly? Oh, it, was, it was bad. You just checked them in. We didn't have board bags. We didn't have anything. You just checked your board in. And they would like tape a luggage tag on it. And they would ding the heck out of it, break your fin off. I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and there, was guys, there was guys that made a living hanging out at the airport, waiting for ding boards to come off the plane and doing repairs. Classic. Did you, um, were you mainly Waikiki folks in those days or did you venture across to the North Shore? When did, when did that transition happen? Well, that was summer. Yeah. So okay. I served Ala Moana almost exclusively, uh, but I would go out to Yokohama Bay out on the west side sometimes when there was a big swell. But uh, it wasn't until the following winter <coughs> that I went and stayed and surfed on the North Shore. Same year, but it was like the end of November. How was that experience? That was heavy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so big. Yeah. It looks big in the movies, but I'm telling you, it's way, way, way bigger in person. Yeah. yeah and I mean, in those days... Guys were like, they would totally underestimate the size. It was like, you were, it would sound braver if you said it was smaller. So the guys that come in, it was like, you know, 55 times overhead. And they go, yeah, it's eight feet. <laughs> yeah, Hawaiian eight feet, yeah. 
I remember the ticket first time I took off in a wave at Waimea Bay, you know. I'm going, this is like 100 feet. This is the biggest wave there ever was. You know, I, I pulled out and, and I think George Downing's pedaling. He goes, oh, that's a pretty big wave for your first one, maybe 18 feet. I'm going, 18 feet? <laughs> it was 100 feet if it was an inch, George. <laughs> Yeah, the, my, my first session was, um, oh, what's the beach park next to pipe? Um, was it Ukulele Beach Park? Whatever? I can't remember what the name beach, is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, on the right of pipe there was. The, the yeah. thing I think that freaked me out the most on that, that stretch was the proximity to the sand, is how, how close you are. And, you, you know, people always say, oh, pipe, it's intimidating because you're on the beach and it's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But when you get there and you're like, shit, I'm basically taking off on the beach here. Uh, it was, yeah, it's real close, you know, on a, on a big day of pipe, if you, if you launch yourself just right from your board on the takeoff, you can land at some chick's arms on the beach. <laughs> uh, classic. So from a, from a traveling perspective, did you, did you hit the Indo circuit when that was found or, or any, any, any other cool surf story trips that you want to reminisce uh, about? I went to Peru when they had the, they used to have the international big wave championship. Down and you there. won that. I went down there for that. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, but, uh, I traveled all around the U S I surfed in the East coast and the Gulf coast. And, yeah. You know, the States North of us that we don't mention, but I already did. <sighs> um, and, and why? And the, the outer islands. Yeah. Um, but I didn't actually, Travel well. I went to Australia in 1970, but uh, my favorite destination was Fiji. It was yeah. Tavarua, yeah. but I, you know, didn't get there until 1988. Yeah, a good friend of mine, Ben Wilson's connected to uh, Namotu, which is just across the way. So um, yeah. the guys here all go on an annual trip to Namotu, and it's a huge highlight. Yeah, I love Tavarua. I, I went there a month a year for like five years when they first opened. At that time, Nomoto was just a little punk of sand with like one scraggly palm tree on it. And Cloudbreak, Cloudbreak, what drew you there or which other spots that you around Fiji? I just served Cloudbreak in restaurants. Yeah. Restaurants was my favorite. It, it doesn't break very often, but when it breaks, it is just as sweet as it gets. Hmm. It's super dangerous. Super shallow. I was about to say, I've never surfed it, but from what I know, it's super shallow. Oh, it's so shallow. It's like, you know, it's like, it's so shallow. You can't even say deep. <laughs> it's just shallow. You wouldn't say, oh, it's a six inches deep. It's, it's four inches shallow. And the reef is just the most gnarliest thing you've ever seen. There's like every bad kind of coral you can imagine. There's fire coral, staghorn coral, killer coral, you know, alien coral. It's bad. <laughs> and do you still do you still get back to Fiji or not? No, no. no. Since I moved to Mexico, I, I'm here. Sweet. Actually, part of my um, as soon as my kids out of school, I'm, I've got a, a a picture of a catamaran up there, and I'm going to live on that and surf the South Pacific. So that's my that's my life goal. Yeah, I kind of found mine. <laughs> yeah, I when I go to Southern California to visit my kids or to do whatever I do, I don't even surf. Just. Just too much, huh? It's too cold. Uh, <laughs> and too crowded. Yeah, I'd say the, the, blood, the blood thins quickly, as I said, growing up in Cape Town where you, where you, you hardcore, yeah, it drops below 20 degrees centigrade. I'm like, oh, got to put on a full suit because you, you get used to the warm water quickly. Oh, I tell you, my threshold, you know, used to be at anything. I'd serve, you know, 45 degree water in Oregon. But then when as I got older, I free find it to 57. That was because at 57 is where you get the ice cream headache. Yeah. And so I figured I'm not going to surf when it's under 57. But a couple years living in Mexico, I changed it. Now it's 77. <laughs> I didn't want to surf in Hawaii. It's too cold over there. <laughs> That's classic. Um, let's talk about your books. Um, so you've written three books. Um, what is that? What is that journey like of putting pen to paper? Actually, four. Four. Um, Jeez, my my numbers are off here. <laughs> old old resume. Um, yeah, my newest book. It just, it's actually just came out. Yeah. It's called Not Done Yet, and it's the actual audio autobiography. 
it took me the last 10 years to write and uh i'm pretty happy with it. it it pretty much tells everything from the day i started surfing till the day i stopped writing the book which was early december of last year and and how did you how did you kind of pull back on all those memories was it just kind of sitting there jogging them or did you have a journal or or it took 10 years because I would write and then I go, Oh, I forgot that story about the flying saucer. And so <laughs> then I, would, I, would, I would put that in and I just yeah. kind of kept, kept building it and building it and building it until it got to the point where it was like a phone book. And then I just cut out the ones that weren't very important. And, uh, there, there it is. There it is. And is it on, on, uh, audible and Amazon and all the usual places? Have you done the audio? Yeah, book it, you can get it on Amazon, um, all the usual places. You can go to notdoneyet.com, and I think it order direct. Okay. And it comes in, it comes in, it two versions. It comes in black and white and with color photos. Color photos cost a little bit more. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, just in terms of you know your other books before that, writing your first book, what what is what is that experience like? Because for those who who I know. They say once you've done, if you knew what it was before you started, you wouldn't really get into it because of the amount of work. So come putting back to your first book, what is that experience like? The first book was, was sort of an autobiography, but it was told through a whole bunch of short stories that kind of, I threw them all together. Mm. And um, it uh, got published by a big publishing company in Chicago. It did, did really well and uh, was, was lucrative. And so not long after that, I got a job writing for a newspaper in California as a columnist. Yep. And people liked my columns, so I put together a book of short stories, which had all been columns. Yeah. And I sent it out to publishers. And this was, what, 10 years later from the first book. And the whole publishing thing had changed. The deals weren't as good. Mm. And uh, the... The offers I got, I didn't like. And so I decided to not quite self-publish it. But what I did was I printed 250 copies of original manuscripts. And I signed them, dated, and numbered them. And I sold them at my gigs when I played music for $50 each. And made more money off that than I got from any of the offers from the (laughs) publishing companies. So I did two of those books. They were called Peer Pressure. Yeah. P-I-E-R, Peer Pressure. And uh, um, the first one, I think, was called Surf Bumps. Okay. And the second one was How I Was Barca Lounged Into Submission. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, when I moved to Mexico, I, I decided I really should do a real auto, autobiography. Yeah. Just like everybody does. And so I started work on it and just, just finished it in a small publishing company in um, Iowa. <laughs> yeah. Um, published it and, it, and it's, it's out now. You can get it. Not done yet. Not done yet. We will put links up. Have you done the Audible yet? Have you done the recording or not? Not yet. But, uh, but if it does well enough, we'll do an, we'll do a, an audio one. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. hard because it's, it's a small company and it's pretty, you know, it's, there isn't a big advertising budget. Nobody's going around selling them to surf shops. So it's just available online. Cool, cool, cool. So Hopefully we'll break even soon. <laughs> <laughs> so how did the SpongeBob SquarePants thing happen? So <laughs> That was one of my favorite things I ever did. Yes. You know, it's, like, it's like when my kids were young, their friends would come over and my kids would go, yeah, my dad's a surfing champion. He's done this and that. And the kids would go, yeah, big deal. They go, and he's a, he's a fish on SpongeBob. They go, you're a fish on SpongeBob. Oh my God, you're our hero. <laughs> so how, how did that so, whole, whole thing happen? I just got a call one day from a guy at Nickelodeon. Because yeah. we have an episode and we have a, we have a fish that, called Grubby Grouper. And we think you're the perfect guy to be it. Do you want to do it? I go, sure. So they go, okay, uh, be here tomorrow at noon. <laughs> and so I went up to Burbank to Nickelodeon and they yeah. had a, it's a little script, and you know, I read it, and they went, perfect. They went, that's it? And I go, yeah. And I go, you want me to do it any different ways? They go, well, if you want to, go ahead. So I did it about five or six different ways. And yeah. They went, great. 
and I was out of there in about 15 minutes and, and it showed and showed and showed and showed and it's still showing. And that was, God, when was that? That was in the nineties and I'm still getting residual checks from SpongeBob. So do you get royalties, so to speak, or residuals every time it shows anywhere in the world or how does that all work? Yeah. Anytime in the world it shows. That's classic, man. Well, providing it's my voice. Yeah. Sometimes when they show it in a foreign language, it's not me. <laughs> but it's actually supposed to be me because it says my name on it. So, That's but so it's, you know, I don't get big checks anymore. They're usually about, you know, $13, <laughs> but I still get them every, every three months. <laughs> they eat a couple of cups of coffee. There you go, right? Yeah, I'm always happy to get it. <laughs> so you mentioned. Look at this, baby. I got another SpongeBob check. <laughs> Drinks on me tonight, yeah. Um, so you mentioned kids. So, so yeah, from what I know, you've got three kids. I probably got that wrong as well. But uh, you ended like sort of having. No, only three. I got it right. Got a stat right. There you go. You, I, I, from what I know, your son's got a great first name, uh, same as mine. Um, yes, Clint. Clint girl, he's my oldest son. Good surfer, uh, too. So, so how did, how did, you know, how did kids change you and, you know, how did that change your perspective on life and, and how did you pass on your stoke and your love for your ocean to the kids? Well, you know, obviously when I got married, had, had my first kid and settled down, became very domesticated and, uh, uh, my son learned to surf at a young age and got, got real good. And uh, now he has his own surf school and he plays music too. He's very good kind of heavy metal musician and we sort of do the same thing just differently. Yeah. Brilliant. And you other kids? I've got two younger ones. My older one's Clint's like 50. Okay. And then I have a, a daughter that's 26 or just turned 27 and her name's Casey. She surfed a little bit when she was younger, but she went off to college and uh, uh, doesn't surf anymore, but she's, doing really well. And my yeah. youngest son, Tanner, he was a, a really, really good skateboarder when he was younger. Didn't start surfing until he came to visit me in Mexico about 10 years ago. And uh, now he surfs, but only a little, only when he comes to visit me. That's crazy. Cause I mean, for, for me, like I'm fanatical and, and my, my kids almost knee jerked against me. Like they didn't want to surf because I wanted them to surf so badly. <laughs> did you, did you have the same experience at all? Well, I didn't push, you know, like Tanner or Casey to surf. I didn't even push Clint to surf. It's just that he wanted to surf because well, I was always going surfing. Yeah. And he'd go to the beach. And, and actually, the first time he surfed was in Australia when he was, um, I think he was two. Yeah. And um, I pushed him into a wave on my board at, at North Avalon in Sydney. He kind of like cruised in and, again <laughs> for the next three hours you know, pushing him into little waves and and then uh and the stoke has he been started surfing. Since, uh, yeah. classic. and 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 i mean they're all stateside you get to see them pretty often or i get to see them when i go to california two or three times a year okay. and then generally they all come visit me like once a year or twice nice. clint likes to come down a lot because he's you know he's a real hardcore surfer yeah. But I see Tanner and Casey more when I go to California, you know, they're, they're both great kids, you know, it's, they're doing really good. Brilliant. Tanner's a coolster. Uh, Casey's a chick. <laughs> and Clint wants to use, steal your surf school. <laughs> yeah. Clint's more like kind of me, mini me, but he's way bigger than me. <laughs> Classic. So just conscious of time here. Yeah, thank you so much again for, for the conversation we had between uh, Corky and I, we had huge tech issues trying to, trying to get us going, but um, thanks again. So just wanted to sort of wrap things up. I mean, we'll put all the links in the show notes, but where can people find you? Right. Um, okay. I'm surf. very easy to find. Yes. Okay. I, I'm a Corky surf at AOL.com. Yep. Corky, Corky surf, C-O-R-K-Y-S-U-R-F. And then you can also reach me on Facebook. I've got two different pages on Facebook. Or you can reach me through bluemangosurf.com. Are you got any Instagram at all or not? Yeah, I'm on Instagram. It's a, I don't use Instagram a whole lot because I'm on Facebook all the time. Okay. Uh, but I should, I should use Instagram more. But, yes, I'm on Instagram too. Cool. So we'll get all those links from you. Um, just to, I guess, a, 
a closing thought, if you don't mind. So for people who, especially during this bizarre COVID time, right? I think a lot of people are losing jobs. A lot of people are staring in the mirror and going like, well, what's the purpose in life? You've obviously weaved this most amazing life and always found opportunity to keep your passion alive. Any, any closing thoughts to anyone who's kind of stuck in, in, in a rut and, and really wants to you know, follow their dreams for once? It's a lot easier to get motivated to do stuff if you're doing something you really want to do. Um, like this, this, all the, this COVID stuff is, you know, we closed, we're, we haven't been doing any business, but it's allowed me to spend really a lot of time in my music room writing songs and working on another album. So it's just, you know, find something you really like to do and then you're motivated to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're doing something you really hate, you're never going to really be that motivated. So it's always going to be work and, you know, Work is that, that word, you know, but if you're digging doing it, it's not work. It's what you dig doing. Yeah. I dig surfing. And so I'm lucky I can, I can make some money still, still at 72, you know, like by surfing with people and telling them stories and uh, coaching a little bit and, uh, and, you know, do music. I don't teach tennis anymore. Uh, it just my body gave out on that a long time ago. <laughs> Brilliant. Corky, thank you so, so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. I, I look forward to surfing with you one day and, and maybe teaching you how to foil. Uh, and uh, once the world opens up, so thanks so much again and have a wonderful evening. Thank you, Clint. Adios, everybody. Peace. <laughs>